Welcome to the Heart Failure Focus Podcast. Each episode is designed to help the busy healthcare professional break down all aspects of heart failure into different topics so you can listen on the go during the course of your day. This podcast is brought to you by the American Association of Heart Failure Nurses. The AAHFN is a specialty organization dedicated to advancing nursing education, clinical practice, and research to improve heart failure patients' outcomes. You can learn more about the American Association of Heart Failure Nurses and subscribe to this podcast today at aahfn.org. Welcome to Heart Failure Focus. We're privileged to be able to talk with Dr. Kelly Stamp this evening about heart failure classification. Dr. Stamp's an associate professor and associate dean of academic programs at the University of Colorado Anschwitz College of Nursing. She earned a BSN, an MS in nursing education, post-MS in adult nurse practitioner and PhD in nursing. Dr. Stamp serves internationally as the lead consultant for developing and implementing an adult gerontology uh, neuro nurse practitioner program at Bern University of Applied Sciences in Bern, Switzerland. In addition to developing the AGNP role at Bern, she is now assisting with educating the Swiss about the role of DNP prepared nurses. Due to her work with the Swiss, she was invited to be the international keynote speaker at Bern University for Applied Science and Nursing graduation ceremony in November of 2021. Dr. Stamps a regional and national leader in heart failure and is currently a past president of the American Association of Heart Failure Nursing. Her publications focus on improving outcomes for patients with heart failure and nursing education. And she is currently funded to support research study to improve outcomes in heart failure patients through the correct identification of patients' New York Heart Class Association functional classification. Dr. Stamp is a 2020 AACN Wharton Executive Nurse Leadership Fellow and a 2021 AACN Elevating Leaders and Academic Nursing Fellow. For the culmination of her national and international work, she has been recognized as a fellow of the American Heart Association in 2014 and was inducted as a fellow in the American Academy of Nursing in 2019. And I am proud to call her a professional friend and always look forward to hearing what she has to say as we discuss New York heart class functional classifications and heart failure patients. And while this may seem somewhat rudimentary, I think as we wade off into this discussion, you'll be impressed with some of the findings that she's been able to observe and where that may lead us. And I'm really excited about hearing about this research and what it could mean as it can be impactful down the road. So Dr. Stamp, tell us a little bit about the problem as you see it and looking at heart failure classification, functional class, and what that means for our patients, and what you found with some of your, your current research. Yeah, thanks, Chris, and thanks for that, that lovely introduction. So, New York Heart Association classification, why did we even stumble onto this issue? Being on the board and president of the American Association of Heart Failure Nurses, I get the privilege of working with a lot of heart failure clinicians who are out in the trenches working with heart failure patients every day. During the time that I was a president of the American Association of Heart Failure Nurses, the conversation happened around whether or not people were being classified appropriately. And then what does that really mean? Like, what does it mean when someone's not, what's the, the untoward effect when someone is not classified appropriately? And so I really started asking clinicians around this, do you think this is really a problem? And then we had some conversations with Abbott. And by the way, my, my study is funded by Abbott Laboratories. And what we were finding is that people were kind of missing their window. For evidence-based medicinal and device therapies, 
because of their classifications not really being accurately decided around class three to four. Basically, people were being diagnosed a little bit too late, and it was kind of pushing them past the medicinal and device therapies being helpful to them. And unfortunately, having a quicker trajectory towards death is not really a a very good quality of life as we move forward. So my colleagues and I wrote for a grant to get funded to start a study. One, we wanted to kind of see the data around the accuracy of deciding New York heart functional classification. We know that in the evidence that our therapeutic guidelines, this is how practitioners really assign by how they assign New York heart class is how they assign medicinal and device therapies. So we were funded, another researcher and I, Dr. Marilyn Prezan, and then I think it's really important to have clinicians in on research studies because you want to continually inform and keep it translatable to practice. So Lisa Rothman, who is an acute care MP in out of Lancaster Health, Penn Health, is also was a co-investigator on our study. So we set up a study in two phases, and we really wanted to look to see if accuracy was indeed an issue. So I will kind of stop there real quick and take a pause and see if if you have any questions for me or if you would like me to go further. Sure, sure. Great setup. I think we have run into this problem before, whether we admit it. We've seen a lot of patients. This becomes kind of second nature to classify them, and oftentimes maybe we don't really put as much thought into it, but it's really impactful that we identify the right patient at the right time with the right therapy. And oftentimes we have found those patients, maybe that we're confused by their heart class. Maybe it could be encumbered by another comorbid condition like COPD or arthritic disease. And it's really hard to assess, but if it's not performed correctly and accurately and efficiently, we actually are limiting patients from having that proper medication up titration, particularly with with some of the new medicines and the devices. And even beyond that, nowadays we have to run into justification for using those medications and therapies with research. I mean, with insurance companies and very well can be a stumbling block. So it is a problem, even though we may consider this a basic part of the assessment to make sure that we're doing it adequately and accurately is really part of the discipline of working with heart failure patients. And I really don't have a lot of questions for you other than let's get into seeing some of the results that you found, maybe some of the groups, which were surprising to me, some that were better and some that were worse. And as we get into that, we'll discuss some of those little caveats as you present them. Yeah. And I think that one thing that we have to remember is that New York Heart Association class is a little difficult at times for practitioners to really nail down because it is a subjective rating right? You're really dependent on being able to elicit responses from your patients. Are there other factors that are coming into play? Meaning, are they in a wheelchair and they can't have a lot of functional status, meaning walking? So thinking about some of those things as we kind of set up the study, as we interpret our results, as we look at practitioners making decisions around heart class, all of these kind of factors need to be thought of. And so we we really worked hard in thinking about all of these pieces and what does this mean? And, and then eventually what we found out, how is it that we help patient outcomes? How do we help providers so that it's translatable into practice? That was our main goal. So what we did with phase one is we 
sampled 244 physicians, nurse practitioners, clinical nurse specialists, and physician assistants who provided care to heart failure patients. They had to be heart failure specialists. Before we sampled the 244, though, we did a vignette study, which is cases that we made, but we needed to validate those cases. So we surveyed 11 heart failure experts in all the specialties that I just mentioned to review our vignettes to make sure that they were more like real life scenarios and something that a provider would see in practice and specialty practice. So we validated the vignettes first with our 11 experts, and then we surveyed our 244 providers. And I think what we expected to see was that there was going to be a little bit of difficulty around classifying someone between a class two and a class three. Because as someone moves into a class three, that can be a bit ambiguous. We did not really expect the findings that we had. We also you know, class one, very little symptoms. So that to us seemed like that was going to be pretty easy, which it was about 79% of providers got class one correct. And then for class two and class three, providers were around 57 to 59% accuracy with those two classes. What we did not expect was that class four accuracy was actually 36.9%, 37% accuracy with that. And so that really made us kind of scratch our head a bit and say, okay, how is it that we can help providers do a little bit better with certainly the most symptomatic patients, but definitely in that middle range, because even 57 and 59%, 60% for class two and three, we thought maybe we could do a little bit better. And that led us into phase two. Once we determined what the accuracy really was, indeed there was a problem like we were hearing from clinicians, we moved into doing a phase two study where we our intention was to develop a four-item, very short guide to help providers with deciding New York heart classification more accurately than they would maybe on their own. So we developed the guide And we developed it off of guidelines and off of evidence. And it's like almost an algorithmic guide. We tested that preliminary in the beginning of phase two with experts to see if the guide was clear, if it helped them move through vignettes. We used the same vignettes that we used in phase one, did not really want to introduce variability there. And then we, ended up surveying 75 providers, the same types of providers I described earlier, physicians, NPs, CNSs, PAs, with the guide. The difference this time is that we also included heart failure specialists, but we included primary care providers as well. Just having like a known group validity kind of test there, right? We expect heart failure specialists to certainly do better than PC providers. But we wanted to see if the guide made a difference. And if you see an uptick in PC providers and their accuracy, I mean, isn't that great if the guide really works? Because primary care providers see a lot of different people. So we were hoping that that would make a a difference. And overall, we found that the guide did 
improve accuracy of heart failure specialists and heart failure specialists did even better than primary care providers and primary care providers also did better than expected with the guide. So that's kind of a quick and dirty of what those two phases were about. No, that's a great summary. I think it is important. You've mentioned it a couple of times that it's a subjective reporting from the patient that we're listening, but it's also a subjective interpretation. Really, in many ways, particularly when someone is not ambulatory, we really have to kind of process historically what their activity tolerance is and to try to make a a discerning classification based on what they can do, oftentimes compared to what they've been able to do in the recent past, and does make it difficult. One of the interesting parts about the study that caught my eye, and it surprised me just a little bit, were those individuals who saw an additional 10 patients or more per week were actually a little better at assessing. And I think that surprised me in one sense because I wonder sometimes if I miss it because I'm in a hurry, just because of sheer volume. I'm in an outpatient setting. The volume is quite high between add-ons and new patients. You know, I really wonder if there are occasions that in the necessary allotment of time we have to see patients, if I'm not taking adequate time to really listen and appreciate where they are. But it was a pleasant surprise to see that those folks who actually are probably more high volume may actually be just a little bit better. And I guess that speaks to expertise. Are there any little pearls and caveats like that that you kind of picked out that might be things that we can learn from? I think maybe that helps us understand who some of the more proficient experts may be. Yeah, no, that's a really good question. I think there were some surprises when we looked at the characteristics of our providers. So I initially, you know, you kind of make assumptions when you're doing a study. And I initially made some assumptions that board-certified cardiologists working in urban areas were definitely going to be on the top, right? They're going to be the most accurate. We did find providers who were in rural settings who had worked longer years, did not necessarily have to be certified, did a pretty darn good job with assessing heart class. And thinking about one, years of experience, certainly volume of people that you see. So you're seeing it every day, maybe being able to compare, or maybe you're just really good at eliciting some responses from patients. I don't know. There's a lot of variables to play. But one thing I have to you know, kind of think about is the rural providers might not have as many resources to lean on, might not have as many diagnostics to lean on, even though NYHA is subjective and it's about eliciting a history from your patient. I think so many variables probably come into play when you think about what functional class is. So maybe some of the providers who didn't have a whole lot of resources and practice for a very long period of time were a little bit better at assessing NYHA class. Again, could just be for the pure volume of people they see, how long they've been doing it. Regardless, we saw that we could make improvements in all areas. So this is where the guide comes in. The other thing that I was really struck that three-fourths, almost three-fourths of the patients found New York heart classification, functional classification, useful, and 59% uh, valued using the staging system. And I guess that just really surprised me. Just as an example, I've tried to make it a habit. I'm not going to say I do it 100% of the time, but I've tried to make a habit each time I see one of our heart failure patients in our EMR. The final assessment is actually a prompt. And it's simply stage blank, class blank, improved or worsening class blank, 
ischemic or non-ischemic heart failure, whether that's preserved ejection fraction or reduced. And in that one statement, if I fill it out accurately, every time I see a patient, anyone, anywhere who deals with heart failure can almost see what that patient looks like based on that assessment. If they know they're stage C, they were at their worst class four. At that particular visit, they're class two. They can recognize they're probably compensated. And it tells them what the etiology of their heart failure is. So in that quick statement, now we do that a lot because we're involved with a lot of research and that's just kind of getting in the habit of doing it. But really these things are habitual. And if you don't feel like they're necessary and if you don't believe like they promote a proper care of a patient, if they're not important to us, they're not going to impact what we do. And it kind of alarmed me a little bit that even amongst those professionals that should recognize the importance of being able to enumerate and really define this patient population, a fourth of them didn't even really think it was that important. And that's unfortunate. It was a little surprising to us, but I take it in the fact that I'm glad people were honest about it because it gives us kind of an insight into maybe how we can maybe bridge the gap. Looking at how is it we take the data that we have and we translate it into practice to improve patient outcomes. There could be many factors why people might not view NYHA or staging as helpful. And so, yes, I agree with you, Chris. I was a little surprised. I want to look at it as an opportunity. Absolutely. And I mentioned it a little earlier, and this is, you know, we really fight with insurance companies. So this is a real world example that just happened a few weeks ago of a young gentleman who at age 37 was found to have ischemic dilated cardiomyopathy. EF was around 15 or 20 percent, blowing MR as we begin to understand what was going on, but relatively asymptomatic, so much so that his heart failure was a bit of a surprise to him when we found it. It was actually found incidentally on a chest x-ray with cardiomegalia. And as we looked, so he did terrifically well through bypass and valve replacement. He has continued to do well. His EF is still fairly poor. It's around 25. Functionally, he has improved to a class one. He has really done well. He's able to enjoy his two daughters. He's 42 years of age now. He's an active businessman. If you did not realize his history, you would not know he's sick. Now, I'm saying that to say, I try to keep a fairly accurate assessment of his stage in class, and it helped out significantly. We have him on a vasodilatory beta blocker. He's on his Secubitril Valsartan. He's on aldosterone antagonism. And in recent years, we've been able to start SGLT2 as an appropriate therapy. And recently that was denied, even though he was started on that by an advanced heart failure team that was looking at him for transplant, but he's actually done so well, we haven't had to go that route. And it really was frustrating that here we have a young man who is doing exceptionally well. His heart classification is one because he's doing well. But his indication for having those therapies, he has the ICD, he's on good therapy, this new four pillar of therapy that we talk about and that we're really trying to pursue. And now an insurance company will not let us have it without a little bit of, of work. But the convenient thing was the nursing staff, when they received the denial, went back to our notes and they tried to point out, hey, this gentleman's a class four at one point, he improved to class three, and now he's at class one. And we use this classification system to help justify a therapy that's evidence-based. Now, that could have happened. That wasn't a hard thing to do. I could have written a letter. I could have done a peer-to-peer. But the fact that it was documented in my note, our staff was able to take that, was able to, with some 
chronological order, demonstrate that to the insurance company. And my point is classification is certainly good at trying to achieve the therapies that we know can help a patient. But also in our current day, it's important to help maintain those therapies. Yeah, I agree with you. And I think we have to look at classification in both ways, right? It tells us where the patient is and it guides our therapies, but also tells us whether our therapies are working, whether it's being successful. And I think that insurance companies should probably look at that and say, oh, well, this patient is being successful. Let's continue the regimen. Let's, you know, optimize, make sure the regimen's optimized because in in the long run, saving patient outcomes, having better improved outcomes, you know? So I want us to think of NYHA on both sides of the spectrum, not just, it helps us to, in the front end as we meet our patients and we continue to evaluate them, but knowing that it shows us it's working is really important. So in wrapping up, I don't want to take too much of your time. Where do you see this going? What's the next step? How are we going to take this from theory to translate it into our practice and really improve patient care? Well, that's a great question. And I'm glad you asked. We have published the first phase of the study in heart and lung, and we are working now publishing the second phase. So we're disseminating that information. Then we put in for another grant because we believe we need to do phase three and phase four. That is finding that the questionnaire or the guide that we developed for practitioners seems to be useful, but you always want to validate it against the gold standard, right? And we always want to think about, okay, so we've developed this. We didn't just develop it for research. We developed it for clinical practice and to help the practitioner, hopefully. So we're funded in January. We will start phase three, which is further validating the guide. We're testing it against the six-minute walk test to make sure that the provider who uses the guide to class somebody, does that really pair well against a six-minute walk test? And then once we get phase three completed, we do plan to, the phase four is implemented into a busy clinical practice because we really don't want to develop something that's just good for the research books and not any good for practice. So that is our whole point. And it's why we are an eclectic team that we want to be both researchers and clinicians because we're here for our patients. We're here for each other, for our colleagues. So stay tuned. And I hope to be able to continue another podcast when we finish the the second study and and let you know how it goes. Awesome. Thank you. I, I tell our fellows all the time, we treat people, not paper. And if we can't take these ideas and these thoughts and, and if we can't make them patient centric and really improve not just the life expectancy, but the quality of life for our patients who are recently missing the boat. So thank you again for your time, Dr. Stamp. We really enjoyed it. Thank you for sharing with us some of your expertise and how we're moving in this area. And we'll be looking forward to hearing from you in the future. Thank you oh, again. Thanks, Chris. Thanks so much. You've been listening to the Heart Failure Focus Podcast, brought to you by the American Association of Heart Failure Nurses. To learn more about the AAHFN and to subscribe to this podcast, please visit aahfn.org. We'll see you next time on the Heart Failure Focus Podcast.